donuts are too good. I've been getting donuts for people at the Million Dollar Theater, and I've been eating like four of them every Saturday. And now I'm like, you know, having a celebratory beer every now and then if I project well. I'm going to look like Homer Simpson in three years if I don't look out. That's the move, though. Secret Movie Clubbers, and welcome to Secret Movie Club Podcast 68. We are continuing with our occasional series, Pieces of Cinema. Today, we're talking about design, which we're going to broadly define as production design, makeup, costume, all of the departments that go into creating the look of the movie that wouldn't be cinematography. And any cinematographer who is worth their salt and honest and humble will tell you that many times when they get praised for the look of the movie, they'll say, well, 50 plus percent of that was the production designer, the costume designer, the set decorators, the makeup people, all the people that just made everything look amazing. And then I figured out the way to create the mood and the tone with the lighting, but I didn't build the set, et cetera, et cetera. Who is with us today? Hello, it's Daniel. Hi, it's me, Carnival Cruz, the people's champion. Hello, America. I'm on my phone. And that's it. And I am Craig, the founder, programmer of Secret Movie Club. It's more than America now, Edwin. I mean, I want to stay humble about this. Did you know that we actually have a sizable following in the UK, in Toronto, in Montreal, and in Germany and France? So don't be don't be nativist, homie. Say hello to our Secret Movie Club audience around the world. We have some people in Singapore. Here are our announcements for this week. Friday night, we are doing Janine Caro's City of Lost Children on 35 millimeter. If you've never seen those first two movies that Janine Caro did together, Delicatessen and City of Lost Children, they're pretty amazing. Uh, City of Lost Children is basically an R-rated children's sci-fi fantasy. It influenced the look and feel of a whole bunch of movies after it. Saturday at the Million Dollar Theater, we will be doing Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket on 35mm. That'll be at 11am at the Million Dollar Theater downtown. And then Saturday night, and as of this recording, it is on the way to selling out. We are doing Three Colors, Krzysztof Kieslowski's trilogy, actually the last three movies he made, Polish director and writer Krzysztof Kieslowski. And we're starting this Saturday night at 8pm with Three Colors Blue. And then it goes white and red. And it's a really fascinating trilogy of France basically commissioned Kislowski to, to make three movies on the colors of the French flag, which represent different values. Blue is liberté, white is égalité, and red is fraternité. And just like Kislowski and his co-writer did with the Decalogue, which is one of my favorite cinematic works of all time, they interpret those things. They do it brilliantly. So liberty, they really, they really ask, what is liberty? And blue, to give you the setup for that, basically Juliette Binoche at the very beginning of the movie loses her husband husband and son in an auto accident and she survives and that's their definition of liberty per se and you realize okay (laughs) we're in for something very complex here a beautiful film and then white three colors white is a comedy that'll be the next saturday and then three colors red is kind of like an existential mystery but very warm and beautiful so join us we're doing the whole trilogy on successive saturdays and if you want to reach out to us you can uh, write us at community at secretmovieclub.com podcast at secretmovieclub.com Club.com. You can see everything we do at secretmovieclub.com. And as I say, if you're in the Southern California area or like these people now who are flying from Seattle, we had 
someone fly from Seattle this last weekend to see some secret movie club events. We have people that drive from San Jose. Thank you to these people, by the way. You can just follow us at Eventbrite, secretmovieclub.com, and anytime we announce a new event, you will hear about it. Today, we are talking about another Pieces of Cinema episode of the Secret Movie Club podcast, Design. It's such a huge topic, like everything we talk about, that I almost don't know how to do justice to it. A great example, if you're a Stanley Kubrick fan, Ken Adam, who is one of the most famous production designers of all time, designed The War Room in Dr. Strangelove. And that War Room is what got put on the poster. It's what got put on pretty much every successive piece of graphic design after the movie. It is one of the marquee moments in the movie, and it was so effective. I love this story, whether it's true or not. It was so effective that when Ronald Reagan became president in 1980, the story goes he asked to see the war room, and he had to be informed by his team that Mr. President actually... There is no war room. There's like a conference room (laughs) where we all meet. And President Reagan was deeply disappointed that there was not a huge cavernous (laughs) space (laughs) with like huge boards that showed where all the airplanes were and a huge circular light where the entire military industrial apparatus sat to like de-escalate World War III. He was really bummed. But what that says to me is think about what a great job Ken Adam did that basically he designed a fiction space for a fictional story and people now think that that place might exist that is almost the height of amazing production design and storytelling but design is also costuming and whenever you see a period piece one movie that just jumps to my mind immediately is Milos Forman's Amadeus best picture winner of 1984 no one questions that that movie took place in the 18th century in Austria and Prague think about the logistical nightmare of costuming a thousand extras in an opera house when uh, Mozart debuts Don Giovanni and the wigs and what that costuming has to say about Mozart's character, his arch nemesis, according to the movie, this wasn't really true in real life, but Salieri, what it says about his wife, about his father, you know, that costuming, you think you're in late 1700s Europe and you never question it. That is amazing. Theodore Pishtek and Christian Thury were the costume design on Amadeus. And then in terms of makeup, Connor was just saying before we started, we're going to actually have a special effects podcast. So we'll save like great zombie makeup or great gore makeup. That's really a bit of a different thing because there's effects involved in that. In terms of makeup, you can look to no one more than Dick Smith, the makeup artist of The Godfather. Why do I say this? Because you might go, well, the makeup, everyone just looked like who they were. Marlon Brando was, I believe, 43 years old when he played Vito Corleone. He was my age. I'm not saying I look young, but could I play a 70-year-old patriarch of a family with gravitas? One, no way. I'm not Brando. I couldn't pull that off. Two, I don't look that way. But Brando could pull off the acting, but not the look. Dick Smith literally created a look where you believe that a 43-year-old Marlon Brando, who just a year before had been in a movie where he looked all hot with a ponytail, was the 70-year-old patriarch of an Italian mafia family. And the way that Dick Smith pulled that off, I mean, Brando was in makeup for hours every day, and he aged his skin, he dried out his skin, he put these things in his cheeks, which Brando suggested. And then Gordon Willis, the cinematographer, changed the lighting of the whole movie because he discovered that if he top-lit things and Brando's eyes would go dark, the makeup would make him look even older and he would look even more mysterious. So this is everything that goes into making a movie. Edwin, Caesar, Gomez, 
What's one of your favorite examples of production design, costume design, or makeup design in cinema? Once Upon a Time in the West. Well, because we, we screened it uh, on Saturday. And How good was that print? That was beautiful. The most pristine print you can ever ask for from the Paramount archives. It looked like it was just made yesterday. So Once Upon a Time in the West is honestly one of the greatest spaghetti western epics of all time. And I was noticing on all of the guys, the cowboy outfits they wear, it's so freaking amazing and real. And I'm pretty sure they're authentic outfits that were used. And especially just the first time we get the dusters, the long dusters, which become a thing in Spaghetti Western. And then Charles Bronson outfit is just so, you know, mysterious. Like, damn, this guy, good guy or a bad guy? You don't know that. But the one that kills it the most is Henry Fonda, who is basically portraying the man in black because his whole outfit is black. And that's so you know that he's the bad guy. And then as for Cheyenne, who we can obviously tell he's, you know, sort of good, sort of bad, I don't know. But Henry Fonda's outfit is probably the most amazing thing ever. And the way he portrays his character as the bad guy is like so sinister and evil. And I particularly like the flashback shots, which was horrifying to me because you see his evil smile with his blue eyes staring at the dude as he's about to hang and then bah! I thought that was pretty cool and also the set design for this movie is incredible this is how you know the studio gave him freaking money to make this movie and I'm very happy that they did this even though I'm pretty sure this was a kind of a flop at the box office I'm assuming because half of Sergio Leone movies here in the United States always get cut and butchered but we get to see it in the entirety cut of the film all the set design is just so spot on great especially the town like oh my god they actually gave him money for this it's incredible and locations dude how can you top that? That scene early on where they're driving Claudia Carnale to her house and they stop at the general store and that's where the characters all meet at the beginning. Like Cheyenne just gets out of prison and Bronson and Claudia Carnale. That production design was incredible. The lighting and the shafts of light and all the wood. You were like, I feel this must be what a general store probably was like. Whether or not that's true or not. It was pretty amazing. I think so, too. I think this might be the most authentic Western movie ever to get those settings exactly how they were back then. Should have won an Oscar for this movie. Design is interesting because, in a way, maybe more than the other pieces of cinema, design can sometimes be good independent of the rest of the movie. You know, even, I think, Scorsese, in his, like, uh, Marvel article commented on like the craft of the people the craftsmen involved and it really is hard to deny even if you like hate whatever big blockbuster it's hard to deny looking at that stuff like they pretty good job these sets look incredible that's like a big thing i always think about a lot is those big sets they make for blockbusters i always wish i could like go just walk around it i think that would be so cool this will only mean something to edwin but that big office from the last episode of loki that'd be so cool just to like walk around in Design is the most effective way of shorthand world building because you just get it and it's in the background and your mind processes it in a way that, you know, maybe exposition, there's a more separation. I think probably my favorite production design in any movie is Brazil, uh, which was actually an, obviously a huge influence on Loki. But in Brazil, my favorite thing, and a friend pointed this out to me like the first time I watched it, is that everything in Brazil is designed to be as inconvenient as possible. <laughs> the TVs where they're like really tiny and you have to put the magnifying glass up in order to see them, everything is meant to be the sort of opposite of 
obviously what we should be striving for, you know, simplicity because of, you know, the implications of the sort of world they live in. It's such a brilliant, they never explain that. They never sit down and no one's like, this is why the TV does this. You just kind of like. But you accept it, which I think is the other great thing of design, because if a decision takes you out of a movie and you say, well, why was that the decision or that's where, but in Brazil, you just marvel at it and accept that that's the world. I never question it. It totally fits the tone of the movie that it's going for too. I think design is obviously super effective at communicating tone. You don't look at Brazil and you don't think like, oh, this is like super serious. It's like a satire. Everything's sort of exaggerated in a way, almost like a caricature. I always really love the tradition that came out of German expressionism of the 20s. Germany really had this explosion of amazing cinema in the 20s and the early 30s, all centered around a studio called UFA, UFA. And many of the filmmakers, Fritz Lang, well, for sure, F.W. Murnau, had come out of theater. And what they brought was this real understanding of how scale will create cinema. And what I mean by that is that if you have a really big billboard sign or neon sign and you have a character next to it, you don't have to have anything else. It actually will be really, really striking in a really interesting way. And one of the interesting things you see with people who don't have a theater background or with people who don't actually understand those tricks, like the tricks of forced perspective or the tricks of the theater or the tricks of actually how you create emotion through design or how you create emotion through the contrast of color. When you get the German expressionist tradition, I love that kind of filmmaking. And one of the interesting things was that Alfred Hitchcock trained initially in Germany in the 20s, and he then brought that into his movies. So one of the things you'll notice in Alfred Hitchcock movies constantly is like North by Northwest, key example, the final climax is out Mount Rushmore. Because he knew that the contrast of these huge stone faces and these little people would be fascinating. Rear window. Look at the apartment design of rear window. He took that straight out of German Expressionism. And that's why Hitchcock, look at uh, Psycho. His understanding that you have the motel and then this Victorian house and then this second floor window. He just got all that perspective and all that stuff is super, super, super key. And what I mean by that is it's not enough to clothe your people and have workable sets and have workable makeup. I mean, that's great. I mean, very few of us can even do that. But when you do that, you get a good movie. But if you want a great movie, you've got to actually exaggerate things. You've got to actually understand theatrically that your design has to be exaggerated. One of my other favorite lessons was Akira Kurosawa was doing Stray Dog, one of my favorite Kurosawa movies. The ending is they know that the bad guy is in a white suit and that he ran into the rain. And so Toshiro Mifune is at this train station smoking a cigarette, trying to figure out which one of the people might be the bad guy because they've set it up where the bad guy wants to meet this girl and he thinks he's going to meet this girl and Toshiro Mifune knows it. Toshiro Mifune is like, what would he look like? Okay, he was in a white suit. All right, he ran out into the rain. Da 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 da. And as he's talking, you're seeing all these people. And then suddenly one character gets up and turns to the window and he's got mud all the way up to the, his back because Mifune knew he ran out into the mud and he knows he's that guy and what kurosawa said was that his costume designer was like akira or probably sensei that's what they call him sensei they used to call him emperor actually behind his back yeah sensei are you sure because this is ridiculous he wouldn't have that much mud all the way up to his neck the mud would just go to his knees and kurosawa was like yes in reality that's correct in cinema 
I want his whole back covered with mud because the visual strikingness of this guy turning around in a white suit and suddenly just be totally splattered in mud with the back will be a shock to the audience. The costume designer was like, okay, you're the boss. So they did that. And it's one of my favorite moments in the movie. Totally exaggerated, totally too much. But for the cinema of it, it's great. Daniel, what are your broad thoughts about design? Design is is so fundamentally part of filmmaking and I think it's a part that gets overlooked because it becomes just so much part of the experience that you sort of forget that you're experiencing it like some of the best design just so pulls you into the world and keeps you there and so you rarely think about it it's a thing when we talk about like what separates like how does a student film differ from that I think a lot of that comes to design because there's so much thought when you're working with a really talented production designer or someone a director who really thinks that way there's so much thought that goes into what the design says about the story and the characters like you have someone's dorm room And the posters they have on the wall, the movies they have on the shelf, the books on their bedside table, like do they have a ton of glasses of water on their desk can speak so much to character. And I think sometimes that can be overlooked. And when it's overlooked, it becomes really obvious because something feels a little bit off. And other times when it's just on point, you forget. And that's not even speaking to things like a fantasy movie or an epic or like a period piece, which is so much of it's catered around design to make you feel like you're part of the era. I think a lot of interesting stuff in modern design is kind of difficult because you have to speak to current trends, but also tell who these people are. You get something like, say, hereditary, where stereotypical thing of like, well, the house was part of the character. But I think you learn so much about the characters, the the pictures they have on the wall. You have this mother who's an artist that does miniatures. So you have her workspace and sort of what her setup is and the cleanliness or uncleanliness of it speaks to and like the teenage boy's bedroom, stuff like that, that when done right speaks so much and adds so much to things. And you don't really notice it. I feel like it's sort of an underappreciated thing in that regard because when it works, it works. When it doesn't, then you notice. Specifically, I mean, some of the period stuff is obviously insane, like Downton Abbey. Taking a walk through the Downton Abbey set must be just, it's just, you know, antiques and beautiful things everywhere. But I was looking through some of the production design wins of the last few decades from the Academy. You know, you get things like Memoirs of a Geisha that are super period piece oriented and different cultural things. And I think those are always fascinating because it's something that challenges international audiences because it's something you don't immediately understand, but it's so engaging and makes you want to learn more about that culture, I think. Um, They're just filmmakers that are sort of known currently for having a really specific aesthetic to that. I think you, you know, obviously get like Wes Anderson who gets a lot of flack for his design stuff, but I think it fundamentally makes, it's sort of his calling card. It's, his themes can attribute to that design and so much of it is in character that I think it's incredibly effective but the filmmaker currently that I think of a lot and I think gets a lot of credit deservedly for it is Guillermo del Toro and his production designer and art director set decorator etc stuff like Pan's Labyrinth or Crimson Peak Shape of Water are just so meticulously designed that everything about the design stuff of the set and stuff is tied into the story in such such a specific atmosphere and that goes back from Kronos to his latest stuff it's always been something that's heavily ingrained and if you've spent any time with his behind the scenes work or seen sort of his house any of that things he's very clearly inspired by a lot of old horror gothic mexican and really just everything around and with that his stuff has such a specific mood that kind of elevates things like the shape of water is so obsessively designed crimson peak i go to a lot because i think crimson peak was sort of this misunderstood thing that was sort of advertised as a horror movie but it's kind of this gothic romance with a little bit of a horror aesthetic 
and it just feels like walking into a different, like a world that feels somehow familiar, like a period piece, but also every detail of the house that the mansion that they're in radiates some unease to things. And I think that's such a specific talent and it's incredible. It's super interesting, Daniel. Thanks for sharing. Wow, Daniel. I'd never really looked at it in that light. Had you, Edwin? No, no, no. Dan- Daniel knows we saw him well, since he's a big shot now because uh, hey, this, this guy, man, this guy knows his stuff, man. <laughs> So actually, guys, let's flip this on its head. I don't think we've ever done this. And I, and by the way, I'm not looking for you to be specific if you don't want to be, because I get it. Making a movie is hard. But when do you think design or makeup or costuming, what do you think are some mistakes? I think it's maybe one of the easiest things to goof up when you're making a movie. A prime example of this is in the famously bad movie, The Room. It's like a famous moment, but there's all these picture frames in the background, and they left all the stock photos in of spoons. (laughs) And so it just looks like this person has a bunch of pictures of spoons. There was this other bad movie that I saw like a review of on Red Litter Media. They were just like filming in someone's apartment and this person on their bedside table had a jar that's it was like deadly farts. It was labeled that it was obviously like a joke thing, but they never address it in the movie because it was clearly just something that that person had there that they didn't think like, oh, this is going to be really distracting. One of the greatest lessons I also got to your point. Connor was the production designer for Catch Me If You Can, one of my favorite Spielberg movies, was saying, okay, we were making this period movie. Catch Me If You Can is actually a period movie of the 60s. It sort of goes from the early 60s to the early 70s. And she said, the first rule of period production design is subtraction, not addition. It's actually removing everything from a set that wouldn't have been there 20 years earlier. And she said that weirdly, if you forget that, you just have to look at the frame and say, these cars wouldn't have been here. This kind of mailbox wouldn't have been here. This kind of billboard wouldn't have been here. And if you subtract, 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 you actually get to period as well. So to your point, you really need to look at a frame, which is why it's so important as a filmmaker to communicate to your team what the frame is. Because, you know, Kurosawa would say the same thing. If it was out of the frame, you don't have to sweat it. So Kurosawa would say, like, if there's an airport on the left, and a Starbucks on the right, but it's not in the frame, it doesn't matter. Well, actually, this is a mistake that was intentionally left in, which is Sam Peckinpah's film Convoy. It's the scene where this guy with some TV crew is interviewing the truck drivers, and if you look at the camera, it says Panavision, and Sam Peckinpah is <laughs> right there, and as you cut through the other side... The camera is actually shooting Chris Christopherson talking while he's talking to the interviewer. So I don't know why he chose to do that, because it's pretty obvious that's a movie camera, not a news camera. Like, who in the hell would use Panavision to film an interview? But it was left in. No one said anything. But I I noticed it. Come Come on, Sam. What are you doing? Using Panavision to use for interview camera? Come on. One of the things I love about great designers, too, is great designers, really truly great designers, can make things appear a certain way that totally hoodwinks the audience in a way that blows me away. An example is forced perspective, which James Cameron's brilliant at and special effects people are brilliant at. So if Edwin and I were really brilliant at special effects, we could build a castle 
that's only two feet. We could get a model. You know, it would take us a week to do it. and We'd have to be very patient. But we could get a totally photorealistic castle, build it. And if we put it in the foreground, but had the actors pretend as if it was in the background, you would literally have what looked like a castle and an amazing production design that cost you maybe 50 bucks. And James Cameron has done that. And Peter Jackson has done that. And I love when I see that stuff. Connor talked about it already, but the room is such a good example of just soulless, like everything I bought at Ikea design mixed with insane CGI. I can't think of a specific example, but you can tell when there wasn't a lot of work in that. There's an aesthetic of when stuff's not there where something feels off and it feels not like within a budget restraint, but just like as if you didn't take advantage of that part of the filmmaking thing. I think a lot of low budget horror stuff can do that. You know, for them, that's not always the care for it, but you feel it that something feels off. And, you know, sometimes you're trapped with a budget you don't have. You can't get a location. You can't bring in set designers, art directors to do what you got to do. But I think little pieces of stuff like that really elevate a movie. You know, if you have a character who works at a desk, what they have on their desk, people read into whether they whether they do it intentionally or sort of subconsciously. You look for stuff. I remember at a Q&A uh, for Gone Girl, Someone asked David Fincher about a board game that Ben Affleck pulls out at one point as if it was intentional. And they said, no, we had to get the rights to that and put it in the closet for the thing. So we didn't think anything, you know, it wasn't something that was like intentionally like a wink joke, even if it worked out that way. But it was that idea that so many people looked to that as something that was informing a character or a story that every single detail like that is going to read in some audience member's mind in that. So it's important. The older I get, there are advantages to getting older and there are disadvantages to getting older. I think the biggest disadvantage to getting older is forgetting that you need to make young people movies. This is a real firm belief I have. Most people are young. Not everybody gets to be 60, 70, 80 years old. So the reason I think that movies really work when the filmmakers were younger, like why Jaws is many people's favorite Spielberg movie, is because he was a young person when he made that movie and everybody got it. Old people, middle-aged people, young people. When you get to be 78, you make a movie like The Irishman, which I love. Scorsese's says he's The Irishman, but a lot of people are like, this is three and a half hours about death. Like, oh, okay. And I love The Irishman. I think Irishman's one of Scorsese's greatest movies. But nevertheless, it is an old person's movie. So I think the disadvantage of getting older is making old people movies and forgetting that you need to make young people movies. I actually personally think you need to make movies with the fire till the day you die. I think you got to make movies like a 25-year-old until the day you die. If you can bring in some wisdom and some perspective and some subtler philosophy, I think that's great. But I think if you forget to entertain and be exciting and tell a story that's gripping, I think that's a mistake. That being said, I think one of the advantages of getting older, in my opinion, is actually realizing that every decision you make in filmmaking needs to come out of story. This is a firm belief I have. What, do you, what story are you telling? Are you trying to scare the audience? Are you trying to make them laugh? Are you trying to get them to cry? What, what is the character? And then you can make all your decisions out of that. And those decisions can be wildly stylish. The mistaken design I see is when I see a movie and it's all about color. And then you're like, oh, oh, okay. I don't know what they're trying to say in this scene, but I certainly know they love that neon blue whatever in the background because all I'm getting out of this scene is neon blue. Or, you know, when you see it and you're like, okay, I don't know what the point of this scene is, but I certainly know it was to put that actor in those knee-high suede boots. I'm really into those knee-high suede boots, but I don't know what the point of the scene is. And I would just say that, weirdly, one of the things you learn about color and design is that actually a lot 
lot of filmmakers, and if you guys watch this, you'll notice this, a lot of filmmakers prefer to do their design desaturated because if the color is too saturated and you're really sensitive to color, you get knocked out of the story. So if you look at the Coen brothers, the Coen brothers palette in almost all their movies are browns, yellows, earth colors. And if you look at it, it's as close to black and white as you can get without being black and white. And it then gets you into the story. Look at Scorsese's palette. Even look at Spielberg's palette. All of their palettes are actually fairly desaturated. They're not really saturated color. Now, somebody who I think is dynamite with saturated color right now are the Softy Brothers. When I watch a Softy Brothers movie like Good Time or Uncut Gems, that whole the weekend scene with those saturated, saturated oranges, like that's just great. And I'm totally into it, and I can get into it. But I think it's very tricky. One of my favorite super-saturated movies I've mentioned before is Umbrellas of Sherber, Sherbo. You teed me up for another one of my little things I wrote down, which is that, speaking of old and design, I was going to shout out, I saw old, and the makeup in it is actually pretty solid. Because the time is like a year every half hour. And so the older actors, it's very subtle at first. You don't notice it for a while, and then you start noticing little wrinkles. It's actually pretty well done. If you could go onto any set in history just to like look around, what would it be? My two picks is the volcano base set from You Only Live Twice, I think would be dope. And then the Batcave sets from Tim Burton's Batman movies. Ken Adam, I think, did the volcano. Talking about production, I think that's Ken Adam. I would visit any Del Toro set. I would love to see how he works and just get to walk around and experience it. Because I imagine it's got to be a little bit unsettling with some of his design stuff. It's just so meticulous, and I'm obsessed with it. I would go with uh, the set of uh, Psycho 2 <laughs> and Flash Gordon. Nice. One, just to meet Queen, you know, you know and Max, um, hey... So you great performance, man. You don't need bourbon for that crap. You got this movie, and you got a killer soundtrack ahead of you. Interestingly, I'd actually like to walk onto the set of Casablanca. I'm a huge Michael Curtiz fan. As I get deeper, deeper into Spielberg, I realize that he's really of the tradition of Curtiz, the tradition of shadows and the tradition of dynamic camera and the tradition of dynamic storytelling to fit whatever the story is. Casablanca was entirely shot in Burbank. So I think that on the Warner Brothers lot. And whenever I watch Casablanca, I feel like I'm in Morocco. So I would just love to walk into Rick's. I also think that Curtiz and his team always knew you needed shadow, you needed texture, you needed all of these production design elements for interesting shots. And I would also love to look at that. On pop culture and final thoughts. I watched a few movies this week. I watched Old and Night Shyamalan's new movie, which kind of impressed me. Shyamalan's a pretty talented filmmaker, and when he's got like a specific zone, and it's very clear when it's him at work. And I had some issues with like writing or like honestly some some of the stuff they got away with for like a PG thirteen flick was very cool. But the general idea and his like obsession with like family and clearly like some stuff with childhood trauma, there's a lot of interesting stuff here and it really doesn't feel it's runtime. It's always kind of pushing forward that I was impressed with. But some of the moments with the family stuff, especially as it moves toward the end, are really powerful and it's very interesting. It sort of has a weird tone that you have to get used to and I think you do fairly quick if you're going to dig the movie. But I was kind of impressed. And the DP here, Michael Gulakis, is one of my favorite working DPs right now. He shot Us, he shot It Follows Under the Silver Lake, and he's done Split, Glass, and Old for M. Night Shyamalan. I'm hoping he's coming back for Peel's Nope, his next movie, but he just has a really interesting aesthetic that I'm very into and 
uh, excited to see more of him with. Uh, and then the other two things I watched were the new Space Jam movie, which I, it's not worth um, talking about, and The Empty Man, which was the sort of underseen kind of... I didn't know a thing about it till like two weeks ago. It's this horror movie about a retired cop who's looking to make sense of a, a woman who's disappeared. He finds sort of this urban legend, supernatural thing is unfolding in this town. And sort of there's like this cult mentality and there's this weird stuff. It's called The Empty Man. But it's this really incredibly effective atmospheric procedural kind of horror thriller. If you're like a Zodiac fan, it has a very Fincher vibe to it. And I don't know, it's like two hours and 20 minutes and it is just so confidently directed. It's his debut. I think it's kind of coming back as something people are talking about in the recent weeks, which is how I discovered it. But it's very good. And I'm a little confused why it was buried the way it was. It's, it's uh, I highly recommend. Uh, speaking of Marlon Brando, I just saw his movie called Burn, directed by the director of The Battle of Algiers. That was the movie he made right before The Godfather. What do you think? I don't know. It's weird. It's strange. It, it's a very strange epic that I watch. And Marlon Brando, I mean, damn, he looks pretty damn good. What a hunk. <laughs> I can't tell if he's talking in a British accent or someone is his voicing him in a British accent. I, I can't tell from these spaghetti movies. No, that's him. I think he post-sunk it because Italian movies are post-synced. But... That movie was pretty wild. But the score by Eddie Marconi is so damn good. For a movie like this, that's, that's, that's pretty damn good. I also watched Bugsy for like the fourth time. And it's still one of my favorite uh, Warren Betty films. I think that's one of his best performances he's ever done. Also, composed by Marconi. I'm on a Marconi run here. I urge you to watch Bugsy, because Bugsy is a great movie. Well, I didn't do a whole lot interesting this week, because I've been getting ready for taking a week off. My buddy Celeste is visiting, finally seeing her for the first time in a, over a year and a half. So I'm very excited about that. And yeah, you can watch a bunch of highlights of me playing video games at twitch.tv slash because I will not be playing games while I'm taking a week off. Uh, my family and I recently went to, if you're a Southern Californian, I highly recommend this. Will Rogers, the comedian of the 1920s and 1930s, who I'm trying to think who he would be analogous to today. He's not really analogous to Dave Chappelle, but only in the sense that the country looked to him to make fun of everybody. He was folksy. He was funny. He shot in all directions. And yet he really, there was a humanism to him, kind of like Chappelle. And if you go to Brentwood Pacific Palisades on the west side of Los Angeles, you can actually, his home is now a park and his home is still there. And then there's this huge lawn. And then there's a polo field where I think Will Rogers and Walt Disney and all these people in the 30s used to play polo. And Martha, Carmen, Craigie, Pammy, and I took one of our first trips together as a family of five. And we figured out how to do that. Uh, <laughs> and that was good. And we went to Will Rogers State Park. And it was wonderful. And they were playing polo. I've never been there when they were playing polo on the polo field. So it was great to see this really weird sport of the rich where you're like, that is a sport that only rich. <laughs> <laughs> only rich people could play uh, horses and polo mallets. Was there like a band playing like classical? <laughs> no, but there was. They did have an announcer calling it, and that was interesting to watch. And Craigie looked at it for a minute, and he was like, wow, I want to ride horses. And then he wanted to move on. So I was <laughs> like, okay. Yeah. There we go. We went, we walked around the Will Rogers house. Then there's stables in the back. My whole point of saying this, I suppose, is that one, if you're looking for a place to visit in Los Angeles, you should totally do this. All you do is pay for parking and it's not that bad. And it's just a wonderful time. And then two, I've never had the money to buy a house. I don't know if I'll ever have the money to buy a house. 
but Will Rogers house would be a house I would love to live in. It's no. And what I mean by that is it's not ostentatious. If I ever had money to get a house, this house was like a house clearly made to entertain, which means it was like he wanted people to be there. It was really homey. I love the yard. I love the big living room. We just looked in through the windows. You could like host eight people there. It wasn't like super showy. And yet you could have a lot of people there. It was very social and very cozy and homey. And I I just, I was like, if I had money, this would be the kind of house I would like. So thank you guys for another great podcast. As usual, this podcast was edited by our chief creative content officer, Connor Lloyd Cruz. Next week, you are going to be hearing a new defend this movie, and it is going to be Daniel Ott defending Mamma Mia with Edwin Gomez on the attack. If you've been listening to these podcasts for any length of time, you, you've heard us round and about the podcast, giving Edwin a lot of grief about Mamma Mia because the rest of us sort of have a good time with that movie and Edwin is just diehard set against it so Edwin gets his day in court tonight which will be Friday when you hear this we are doing City of Lost Children on 35 at the Secret Movie Club Theater in the Arts District Saturday we are doing Full Metal Jacket on 35 Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket at the Million Dollar Theater at 11 a.m. and then uh, Saturday night at 8 p.m. at the Secret Movie Club Theater on 35 again we are doing the first movie in Christoph Kieslowski's trilogy Three Colors Trilogy We are doing Three Colors Blue. You can get tickets at our Eventbrite uh, Secret Movie Club. You can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com with any questions. To find out everything we're doing, go to secretmovieclub.com. I want to thank the team again for everything, everything. We're only moving this train forward because we have a team of people who believe in this thing and are putting in hard work. So thanks, all of you. I'll see you next week. Have a great week. Goodbye, everyone. What we're gonna do for sixty nine, dude? I have. We'll figure it out. We're gonna psych each other. We'll figure it at the out. Same time. <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm a married man. Hey, man. It's twenty twenty one. Yikes! That's not the team building experience I was thinking about. Uh, <laughs> all right.